This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Hello and welcome to Heritage Matters, a programme brought to you by the Southern Heritage Trust and sponsored by Heritage New Zealand. I'm Dougal Stevenson. In this programme, Bill Southworth looks at the rise of the labour movement in Dunedin. I talk to author Ian Doherty about his new book on the first political cartoonist, and Sarah Gallagher profiles philanthropist Wolf Harris. As the busiest phase of the gold rushes receded from the 1870s on, Dunedin began to develop as an industrial centre. For example, by 1880 there were 30 clothing factories. Pressures began to grow to improve the very poor conditions of many workers, and this led on to the growth of trade unions and to left-leaning political parties. Bill Southworth has been looking at the process. Things came to a head when a severe depression hit New Zealand in the late 1870s. There was serious unemployment in Dunedin, partly because manufacturers in Dunedin, to combat competition from British imports, took advantage of the situation to squeeze wages and working conditions. The Amalgamated Ironworkers Association organised a protest demonstration when high levels of unemployment and low wages could no longer be tolerated. The immediate issue will sound familiar. Railways rolling stock and locomotives were being imported rather than manufactured locally. It was felt that, although it costs more to make these in Dunedin, that the local product was of much better quality. The protest took the form of a torchlight procession on a Saturday night through central Dunedin, with the Caledonian band leading the way. The number of marchers was estimated at 3,000. Of these, only 400 were ironworkers, and the rest were labourers, typographers, carpenters, bricklayers, plasterers, bootmakers, tailors, shipbuilders and tanners. In fact, just about every trade and occupation was represented. The Targadaddy Times reported that a Mr Chandler from the Ironmongers told the gathered assembly, We believe that there is a time when it is base to suffer when we ought to act, to bite the dust when we ought to stand erect as men, to positively submit when our rights should not only be heard but felt by our government. We believe that time is the present. Upon all sides we hear distress and poverty and of vast numbers of men being out of employment. We submit that the movement we have now in hand is the right step to take to bring about a remedy for these things. Following the demonstration, a Trades and Labour Council was formed. One of its main aims was to obtain direct representation for Labour in Parliament. Six of the seven candidates that put up for Parliament were elected a move which foreshadowed the establishment of the New Zealand Labour Party. However, by the mid-1880s, the Trades and Labour Council had lost its drive and most of its members of Parliament. Towards the end of the decade, the formation of trade unions was given a spurt by the formation of the Tailoresses Union. Women and girls had been working sewing clothes at home for peace rates and after a 12-hour day might only have earned a couple of shillings. This sweated labour became unacceptable and the Presbyterian Church and the Otago Daily Times threw their support behind the Taylorists' Union. 
At a meeting of the Chambers of Commerce in Dunedin in 1890, Bendix Hallenstein, the clothing entrepreneur, made a speech which must have startled some of the members. I sympathise with trade unions and believe if carried out in a spirit of fairness with joint boards of conciliation and arbitration, they could not only be of benefit to the employed, but also to employers. Without trade unions and with workmen in excessive demands, wages must fall below what they ought to be. I believe the present labour agitation, while it will tend to improve the position of working people, will not only not retard the industrial progress of New Zealand, but if employers and employed meet each other in a spirit of fairness and consideration, it will materially help our industrial development. As the Otago Daily Times put it, the battle of trade unionism had been fought and won. It was fair comment. Unionism had obtained its majority. What followed was a strong growth of trade unions. By the end of 1890, there were 18 unions affiliated to the Dunedin Trades and Labour Council. Initial public support was lessened by an unpopular maritime strike, but a Labour Day march through Dunedin in the same year attracted many participants, and before the end of the decade, Labour Day was made an official holiday by the left-of-centre Liberal government. As A.H. McClintock commented in his book, the history of Otago. It seemed as if trade unionism in New Zealand was to march from victory to victory. Even the most timid body of workers seemed to have imbibed the principles of the movement whose growth was truly phenomenal. With this too went a feeling of fellowship, a belief in the universal brotherhood of labour, which to many became a humanistic creed, transcending the claims of race and country. After the disastrous maritime strike in which unions were routed, the Otago Trades and Labour Council decided that reform could only come from an engagement in national politics. It put up David Pinkerton as a Labour candidate for a Dunedin seat, and he went on to win the largest majority of any MP in the colony. In the next election, the council supported progressive Dunedin Liberal Party members from Dunedin, all of whom were elected, along with Pinkerton who once again attracted the largest vote in the country. The growth of support for Labour attracted great interest throughout Australasia. It seemed that once workers were organised competently and led well, the triumph of Labour at the polls was inevitable. By the end of the century, a conference of trade and labour councils in Wellington decided in principle to support an independent Labour Party in Parliament, as they now regarded the Liberal Party as being too conservative. Dunedin formed the first branch of the new party in 1905, which was initially called the Political Labour League. The Otago Daily Times commented, That the Political Labour League will ever produce a party strong enough to hold the balance of power in New Zealand politics is highly improbable, although that seems to be its ambition. Initially, the paper's predictions seemed to be right, and the party was unsuccessful in its first election outings. However, by 1918, public support had grown and the new Labour Party advanced from victory to victory. Dunedin's contribution to the growth and eventual success of the party had proved decisive. For much of this material, I'm grateful to A.H. McClintock for his book, The History of Otago. This is Bill Southworth reporting.
Well, it's been a while since Dunedin-based historian author Ian Doherty has joined us on Heritage Matters, discussing one of his many books on the history of Dunedin and Otago. Well, he's not been resting on his laurels. His latest publication sports the intriguing title, Shooting Folly as It Flies. Ian, thank you for coming in. Good to see you again. Oh, thank you very much. Now, your book is subtitled The Life and Times of New Zealand's First Political Cartoonist, James Brown. Where did he come from? Well, he came from Scotland, as so many people who arrived in Dunedin in the 1840s did. He was um, a calico printer. He worked in a factory where they took this very bland calico material and printed pretty patterns on it for people to buy. And he moved to Manchester, where he did the same. And then he fell in love with one of his fellow employees in the calico factory, and they decided to come out to Otago, this brand-new settlement in 1848. So why did they come here? We don't know. I mean, he had health problems there. He was working with chemicals. He lived in a part of Manchester, which was not um, uh, clean air and, you know, sunshine and that. It was a very um, very, um, industrialised part of uh, Manchester. So maybe it was health problems, but we're not sure. We don't know after 170 years on. He was... Well, he was a very talented craftsman, wasn't he? Because he he, he graduated into pattern designer. from. He did. He went from printing these patterns on the material to designing them. And he had a natural artistic flair about him, which was used um, in the factory in Manchester. Well, he was nearly 30 years old when he came to... To Dunedin, and uh, but there'd be nothing like that here for him. No, I mean we didn't boast calico factories in Dunedin, and he arrived in 1849, and so this talented artist ends up working as a house painter. I mean he's working with paint, but it's <laughs> yes. not exactly artistic. And he he scrapes together um, enough money to feed eight children, so there are ten mouths to feed, and he does a bit of engraving on the side. He teaches himself engraving. He uses his artistic flair to apply that to an engraving trade. And he starts picking up work as a professional engraver. He also starts teaching um, art, um, mainly to um, ladies with a bit of free time on their hands in Dunedin during the afternoons. And he also started art classes for young men in the evenings. So he must have been pretty successful because he he bought himself uh, quite a bit of, well, property, two properties in fact. He did. He bought one um, house up on the hill they lived mainly in and also a property in Darling Street. But this is after 10 years of um, struggling as a house painter. And then he was able to work full-time pretty much as an engraver. Um, Dunedin, after 1861, was this um, expanding city with all of these new industries and all these um, wealthy people who wanted little trinkets engraved. The city council or the town board before it um, wanted brass plaques made for the Cargill Monument, so we're, we're quite wealthy. The place was getting a bit of local pride, and, and of course there were the numbers of people here. So. It was, and he also, you know, we were big enough to have a logo for our town board, so he designed the logo as a the only engraver, professional engraver, working in Dunedin at the time. So that was, I suppose, quite fortuitous for him at the time. The gold rush benefited him as yes. an individual as well as the town generally, yes. How did you discover him? I wrote a book on Dunedin, uh, published in uh, 2017, um, and I wanted to illustrate that book. It was on the founding of Dunedin. Trying to find outdoor photographs of Dunedin, 1840s, 1850s, is difficult. The first outdoor photo was 1857, so you're relying on um, drawings, paintings, cartoons. And I used one of his, a stunning watercolour of the... um, 
the flour and sawmill that um, water, water operated on the banks of the Leith and also six of, of his cartoons. And I just thought, you know, he deserves a biography, but also wouldn't it be cool to reproduce all of the surviving cartoons of his and to tell a story through those cartoons? Well, you've added, of course, you've got notes to each of the cartoons, and there are, those surviving cartoons are all in the book, of course. They are, and I, some extensive um, captions where I knew what it was about and something of the background, and to put them in some sort of historical context. Um, I cop out towards the end of some by saying the context of this cartoon is obscure, but most of them I found a bit of background for them, yes. Yeah, I thought initially looking at these cartoons that they're they're quite, there's a humour there, a warmth, not necessarily too much savagery. Um, With some of them, yes, but I mean, if you're drawing a cartoon of Julius Vogel, the Otago Daily Times editor, and aspiring politician, uh, you know that he is Jewish and you portray him as a pig, then, I mean, that's getting (laughs) close to the bone, isn't it? It is close to the bone, yes, indeed. He recorded, you know, uh, local Chinese uh, market gardeners, people like that, and that's quite valuable, I imagine. It is. I mean, the cartoons that were drawn about the Chinese, the so-called Yellow Peril, were despicable um, cartoons, but Brown gives an early indication of what a real Chinese man in Dunedin looked like as opposed to those grotesque caricatures of them in the, in the newspapers. Yes, they weren't caricatures. And they're again there in shooting folly as it flies. So you've enjoyed yourself with this book? Um, yes, I did. I, I enjoyed getting to know a bit more about James Brown and to reproduce those cartoons, which most of which haven't been reproduced before. And so it was good to have them put into the public domain. But his cartoon, the period of his cartooning wasn't wasn't very long, was it? Barely a decade. From 1849 to the late 1860s, so nearly a couple of decades, but most of them were for his own amusement and his own benefit and for a small circle of like-minded friends. He didn't feel confident enough to publish them when he's taking the mickey out of people that he expects to pay him to, um, to provide him with a living in Dunedin. And it's only 1865 when... Punch magazine in Dunedin starts being published that he can call himself a cartoonist with weekly cartoons in that publication. He did the cover? Oh, he did a stunning cover. Um, Jim Sullivan, in a recent review of the book, described it as as good as anything you'll see in the original London um, cartoon. Um, well, the original not, London having seen magazine. Having shooting folly as it flies, in my <laughs> humble opinion, Jim Sullivan is absolutely right. <laughs> when did he start cartooning for The Witness, for the Otago Witness? Uh, early on, not drawing cartoons, he was commissioned to draw the masthead for the uh, publication. And again, that was owned by 11 very prominent um, people in Dunedin. So um, drawing cartoons about them, um, taking the mickey out of them, was not a good idea. But also, there was no outlet. I mean, the Otago Daily Times, the Otago Witness, were not publishing cartoons. They were publishing the masthead. Um, they had little sketches of sailing ships above their shipping column, but there were no illustrations in those publications. So even if he did feel confident, he didn't have an outlet until the Dunedin Punch arrived in the mid-1860s. And do, do we know how some of the subjects of his cartoons responded to them? No, the ones that weren't published, no, of course not. But um, no. no, the other ones, no, we don't. We assume there's a reference from his friend James Barr, who wrote a history of Otago, a very amusing history of Otago, that they appreciated them, but I'm not so sure that, uh, that that they necessarily did. He didn't have a long life. 
No, I mean, the ill health that he experienced in Manchester and brought with him continued in Dunedin. So he died in um, 1877 at the age of 57, comparatively young even for the 1870s in Dunedin. Now you're right that uh, considering the non-publication of most of James Brown's topical cartoons, something you've talked about, at the time he drew them, it obviously deprives them of the vital function of any cartoon. Why are they so important? They're, they're not important, obviously, to the people at the time who didn't see them, but to us they're important. They give us an alternative view of the Founding Fathers and their institutions and the reverence which they um, received um, from many people in Dunedin at the time, but not everybody, not James Brown and not James Barr, I mentioned, and a, a group of people who looked at the world differently to that um, reverential um, um, view of the Founding Fathers and didn't necessarily share their pilgrimage to Dunedin to found this religious settlement, which was the whole point of the exercise for people like William Cargill and Thomas Burns. And so they were a, an antidote to that. And we certainly see them in a slightly different light. I mean, his James Cargill cartoons are very good indeed. They are. Um, one of Cargill um, being carried ashore so he doesn't get his feet wet <laughs> in Dunedin and carrying an umbrella to protect himself from the, the sun. But also taking the mickey out of Cargill's dress, his Scottish um, headgear and his um, cape. and um, Yes, it was a different view, literally a different view of Cargill. All these uh, cartoons are held by the Hocken, are they? Most of them are. Um, the ones that were published are in the um, the Punch magazine, and there are copies of that in the public library um, on the third floor and also in the Hocken and various other places around. Where did the quote, shooting folly as it flies, come from? I stole it from uh, Thomas Hocken, who said that... Um, it was like a poem that Alexander Pope had written, so he stole it from Pope, an essay on man in which Pope um, encouraged his friend to shoot folly as it flies, meaning, you know, shoot this um, fantasy and, and fancy ideas out of the sky as it flies past. Very Alexander Pope. Indeed. <laughs> Ian Doherty's book, Shooting Folly as It Flies, The Life and Times of New Zealand's First Political Cartoonist, James Brown at all good bookstores. Described as one of Dunedin's art treasures, the Wolf Harris Fountain dates to 1889 and can be found at the northern end of the Dunedin Botanic Garden near the Water of the Leith. The fountain was donated by a prominent businessman and philanthropist, Wolf Hirsch Harris. Its original location was at the Triangle, now known as Queen's Gardens. Described as one of Dunedin's art treasures, the Wolf Harris Fountain dates to 1889 and can be found at the northern end of the Dunedin Botanic Garden near the Water of Leith. The fountain was donated by a prominent businessman and philanthropist, Wolf Hirsch Harris. Its original location was at the Triangle, now known as Queen's Gardens. This area was the original mouth of the Toitu Stream, the site of the Kaitahu and Ngāti Māmoi Taurakawaka, where the current exchange is, an area of tidal flats at the head of the Otago Harbour. After the arrival of the first Scottish immigrants in 1848, settlement began in the area, and from the 1860s, land reclamation of the tidal flats was a persistent activity in the development of the city. The first Dunedin railway station was built in 1872 near the intersection of High and Rattray streets. It was replaced twice, 
each time on a different site on the reclaimed land. This included the site that came to be known as the Triangle, which was declared a public reserve by Sir Robert Stout in 1885. Three years later, the Dunedin and Suburban Reserves Conservation Society was created. It was colloquially known as the Amenities Society and eventually took on that name permanently. Their first project was the Triangle, described as an idle waste covered with unsightly growth. The public were appalled and shared their views vociferously. Visitors are coming, and it would be a thousand pities that the vestibule of the city, for such the Triangle is, should be in its present disgraceful condition when they arrive. There was much public debate about the use of the Triangle. Eventually, the public voted whether it should be used for the purposes of a market site or for recreation, and the votes were in the majority against the market. The Amenities Society raised £200 for the design, planting and enclosure of the site, and it was at this time that Wolf Harris offered to present an ornamental fountain to the city to an estimated value of £1,000. Born in Poland in 1833, Wolf Harris emigrated to New Zealand in 1852, and with four other families was a founding member of Dunedin's Jewish community, the southernmost in the world. Harris was a local businessman involved in the importation and sale of textiles and other soft goods. He later diversified into clothing and footwear manufacturing. The business boomed during the gold rush when Harris would take his goods to the gold fields on horseback. Even after returning to Europe, Harris continued to support Dunedin, the city where his fortune was made, through donations of art and in support of the university's medical school. Harris's house and estate in Anderson's Bay, which he donated to the Plunkett Society for the Caritani Home for Babies, eventually became the Truby King Harris Hospital. The development of the Triangle took time to organise, and meanwhile the site remained an eyesore, a concerned citizen reported to the paper in August 1889. Who is responsible for the mud and manure depot now being formed in the Triangle? The deposit is unsightly, useless and a nuisance. If this is the outcome of strained relations between the Council and the Amenities Society, it would be better that operations should be suspended all round. I see no reason why the ratepayers should be made to suffer. If the council wish to make a fly trap for catching small boys, I wish they would try the experiment elsewhere. That year, the promised fountain was described from a small tracing received by Mr A. Bathgate, the Honorary Secretary of the Amenities Society. An exceedingly handsome fountain, from which rises a pillar bearing an upper basin. Round the base of this pillar are figures of four children, each holding a large lizard on his knee, and from the mouths of which will flow a jet of water. Round the upper basin there are eight heads, from which the water of the upper basin escapes into the lower. From the upper basin there rises a pillar of leaves, forming a small basin with an irregular edge from which the water drips. Round the base of this small pillar there are four dolphins, while the whole is surmounted by the figure of a stork. The installation of the fountain was estimated to cost an additional 100 to 150 pounds, which Mr Harris kindly funded. In January 1890, the long-awaited works at the Triangle were completed. The wrought iron fencing was set in bluestone with cast iron tips of ivy. There were two sets of gates, a path leading across the triangle from each, 
and at their intersection, the fountain was situated. May of 1890 saw the fountain officially handed over to the city corporation. In 1894, Wolf Harris visited Dunedin from London and was so delighted to see the improvements to the triangle that he offered to pay for the cleaning and painting of the fountain and fencing. After the installation of the Queen Victoria Monument in 1904, the triangle was renamed Queen's Garden. And following World War I, a proposal to move the fountain to the Botanic Garden was made to make way for the Cenotaph. Again, put upon for funds, Harris donated £100 for its maintenance, on the condition that the fountain be supplied with water as soon as it was moved. A decision was made sometime later by the Reserves Committee to permanently relocate the Wolf Harris Fountain to the Botanic Gardens, to be located at the end of the main path by the valley entrance. The Evening Star reported, In this position, the fountain will be seen by every person entering the gardens, and the creek water is alongside and available for use in the event of restrictions in the town supply. Not long after this decision was made, but before the move to the Botanic Gardens occurred, the Deputy Mayor, Mr J.S. Douglas, asked if it would be possible for the fountain to be set up on the newly established Logan Park for the duration of the forthcoming New Zealand and South Seas exhibition. The temporary loan was agreed, and the fountain was erected in the Grand Court at the north end of the Second Lagoon, and just in front of the Festival Hall, which presented a pleasing and artistic sight. Following the close of the exhibition in 1926, the fountain was finally moved to the Botanic Garden to the lawn of the Shakespeare Garden near the Leith. David Tannock, the Superintendent of Reserves, arranged for an interpretive plaque to be installed on the fountain, acknowledging Harris's gift to the city, a thoughtful gesture given Harris's recent death in 1922. In 1988, the fountain was described as beautiful and terribly neglected, and by 1994 it required extensive restoration, which was co-funded by Dunedin City Council and the Dunedin Amenities Society. It received a further upgrade in 2009, funded by the Amenities Society and the Harris family. The Wolf Harris Fountain is a registered Category 2 historic place. You can find the story on the Heritage List online, at heritage.org.nz. This is Sarah Gallagher reporting for Heritage Matters. The award-winning Heritage Matters is broadcast on the first Monday of each month at 9.30am and replayed on the following Sunday at 7pm. There are further replays on the third week of the month, Thursday at 1pm and Sunday at 7pm. Or you can listen as a podcast from the Otago Access Radio website at oar.org.nz. As Aotearoa New Zealand's National Heritage Agency, Heritage New Zealand Pohere Taonga is proud to sponsor Heritage Matters. Celebrate our heritage by becoming a member to visit more than 20 heritage places we care for across the motu for free. You'll receive a subscription to our award-winning magazine, exclusive member events and free or discounted admission to over 1,000 international heritage places. Support the heritage of Aotearoa New Zealand. Check out visitheritage.co.nz.
This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.